This episode contains graphic descriptions of sexual assault, drug use, and murder that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. In February of 2007, 15-year-old Jennifer Mee gained worldwide notoriety when she appeared on The Today Show to discuss her case of chronic hiccups. For the past month, Jennifer had been suffering from hiccups that happened up to 50 times per minute. The audience quickly gained sympathy for this earnest 15-year-old who just wanted to return to a normal life. Four years later, Jennifer was back on the Today Show with an exclusive interview conducted by correspondent Amy Robach. But this time around, the segment wasn't taking place in the bright and cheery Today Show studio. It was taking place in a prison cafeteria where Jennifer had just received her sentence for first-degree murder. As it turned out, Jennifer's hiccups were a symptom of a few underlying issues, some of which no doctors would ever be able to cure. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second of two episodes on Jennifer Mee, a teenage girl who became known as the Hiccup Girl in early 2007. Last week, we examined Jennifer's painful childhood and followed her struggle with a mysterious case of constant painful hiccups. This week, we'll continue to follow her efforts to get rid of her hiccups and see how her 15 minutes of fame affected the rest of her life. For a few weeks in February and March of 2007, 15-year-old Jennifer Mee was a global sensation. After she was hit with a stream of constant hiccups starting on January 23rd of that year, doctors were unable to explain what had made them start or how to make them stop. They had ruled out common hiccup triggers such as drinking carbonated beverages or overeating. Other underlying medical conditions like pregnancy, neural damage, and spinal trauma were also eliminated as possible causes. Medicines such as chlorpromazine, which is commonly prescribed for intractable hiccups, had proven ineffective. So had treatments like massage therapy and acupuncture. As the pain became unbearable, Jennifer's mother, Rachel Robidoux, 
contacted local media in the hopes of getting the attention of a medical expert who could cure Jennifer's hiccups. The story quickly attained national attention. On February 16th and 19th, 2007, Jennifer appeared on the Today Show. The segments exposed her story to thousands of people who were eager to try and help her. One of these people was hypnotherapist Debbie Lane. After unsuccessfully trying everything under the sun to make her hiccups go away, Jennifer was skeptical that hypnosis would be the cure. But she was willing to try anything. As Jennifer headed into her hypnotherapy session with Debbie Lane, she wasn't sure what to expect. When she thought of hypnotists, she pictured people going on stage and being forced to do embarrassing things like act like chickens. Lane promised Jennifer that hypnotism wasn't junk science. As she put it to author M. William Phelps, Hypnosis is a method of achieving a relaxed state of heightened focus and concentration, intensified attention and receptiveness to an idea or set of ideas. Hypnosis produces the ability to experience thoughts and images as real, bypassing the critical factor to establish selective thinking. When the conscious mind is bypassed, the subconscious mind is open to suggestion. This hypnotic trance state makes it possible to increase motivation or change behavior patterns. In short, Lane wanted to determine if Jennifer's hiccups stemmed from a psychological rather than physical origin. If so, maybe she could work with Jennifer to overcome whatever subconscious issue was manifesting her condition. Even with conditions that are purely physical instead of psychological, Hypnosis can help patients cope with their medical issues. According to a study conducted by Dr. Guy Montgomery of the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, hypnotherapy provided a benefit to breast cancer patients by helping them reduce their distress and have positive expectations about the outcomes of surgery. The process doesn't involve any mind control or magic. Rather, it helps patients access their most deep-seated emotions and confront their fears. Debbie Lane hoped that she could do the same for Jennifer. Most importantly, Lane acknowledged that one major error many hypnotists make is using leading questions to get the answers they want to hear. For this reason, when people are under hypnosis, they sometimes recall false memories they believe they have suppressed, Lane promised Jennifer that any revelation she had during the session wouldn't be manufactured. They'd be Jennifer's own authentic thoughts. When they finally sat down in Lane's office, Jennifer was fully invested and ready to give it a serious go. Once she had relaxed into a hypnotic state, she started talking about her difficult home life. She confided how hard it was to live in a cramped two-bedroom house with seven other people. When Lane asked Jennifer about her goals in life, she mentioned that one of them was to have her own room. She also discussed how she wanted more freedom to be her own person. As the oldest child of the family, she had been kept on a short leash for most of her life. She had also been expected to forego much of her own childhood to help take care of her little sisters. Something Jennifer never discussed was being raped as a child. 
or her experimentation with drugs, alcohol, and sex after moving to Florida. Although this may seem like the kind of thing that would come up during a hypnotherapy session, Lane wasn't trying to tease out any specific memories. She had no idea about this trauma, and if Jennifer didn't want to talk about it, she didn't have to. Something Lane did notice was that Jennifer's hiccups became less frequent and intense as their session progressed. In her opinion, the hiccups were linked to Jennifer's desire for attention, to separate herself from the pack, so to speak. This wasn't to say that Lane believed Jennifer was faking the hiccups. Rather, her body was responding to her emotional stresses on its own, without any conscious control. Jennifer needed attention and her hiccups gave her that in spades. The challenge for Lane was getting Jennifer to accept that she didn't need her hiccups to get the validation she craved. The more Jennifer talked about her struggles and insecurities, the less she hiccuped. Finally, after one long period of complete silence, Lane helped Jennifer return to full consciousness. As Jennifer came out of hypnosis, the hiccups were gone. Although it may seem unlikely that a single hypnotherapy session could solve a problem that had multiple doctors scratching their heads, hiccups don't always manifest from physical conditions. According to Dr. John P. Cunha of Holy Cross Hospital in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, hiccups can be brought on entirely by anxiety and stress. As Jennifer had divulged, her life was consumed by anxiety and stress, especially for a teenage girl who valued her freedom. Being crammed in a small house with six other people couldn't have been relaxing. Additionally, Jennifer struggled in school because of her unspecified learning disability. In the crowded Florida public school system, she wasn't receiving the same individual attention she had gotten back when her family lived in Vermont. She also wasn't particularly popular, which wouldn't have made school any easier on her. Perhaps it's no surprise then that her intractable hiccups started shortly after her first semester of high school. As the saying goes, the first step to fixing a problem is admitting that you have it. Jennifer's hypnotherapy session with Debbie Lane was the first time she got to fully express her doubts, fears, and insecurities and perhaps that was enough to make the hiccups go away. As Lane went to tell Rachel the good news, Jennifer burst into tears of joy. Finally, this painful ordeal was over. She could return to her normal life. Interestingly, there are two different versions of what happened next. According to Rachel, when Lane told her the news, she was elated. She and Jennifer shared happy tears of relief, profusely thanking the hypnotist for her help. But Lane's version of the story was quite different. From her recollection, when she revealed that Jennifer's hiccups were gone, Rachel barely batted an eye. If anything, she seemed disappointed. While Lane never suspected that Jennifer was faking the hiccups, she did wonder if Rachel was using her daughter's condition for her own personal gain. The excuse that they went on the Today Show for concrete medical advice 
did seem a bit thin. After all, it wasn't as if morning shows were known for their hard-hitting journalism. The issue was further complicated by the fact that Jennifer went on the Today Show for a third time on March 2, 2007, to announce that after five unbearable weeks, the hiccups were gone. Jennifer no longer needed any medical advice. So if publicity wasn't the point, then there would be no reason to go on the show. Rachel steadfastly maintained that her motivations were never financial. It wasn't as if going on the Today Show had provided their family with a massive financial boon. The total payout amounted to somewhere around $2,200, hardly a fortune. The show had also dedicated a lot of resources toward getting Jennifer help. Perhaps Jennifer and Rachel felt that the producers and the public deserved a conclusion to the Hiccup Girls saga. But once her hiccups disappeared, the public's interest did as well. By mid-March, the world had all but forgotten about the Hiccup Girl. Jennifer had gotten what she wanted. She was a normal girl again. But that didn't mean her health problems were over. Although she was no longer constantly hiccuping, the hiccups would occasionally come back in short, painful bursts. Rather than taking her back for more hypnotherapy, Rachel decided to make an appointment with a neurologist named Dr. Lisa Brunton. After putting Jennifer through some tests, Dr. Brunton diagnosed her with Tourette syndrome. Tourette syndrome is a neurological condition that causes people to develop tics, which are sudden twitches, movements, or sounds that people do repeatedly. Many people associate Tourette's with physically twitching and yelling out foul language at random. While the condition can manifest itself in that way, tics can be incredibly varied. There are two types of tics, motor and vocal. Motor tics are physical motions such as arm jerks, shoulder shrugs, and even blinking. Vocal tics include yelling out words or phrases, but can also manifest as noises like humming, clearing the throat, and hiccuping. Prior to her case of intractable hiccups, Jennifer did tend to have the hiccups worse than most kids. Dr. Brunton believed that they had been a manifestation of Jennifer's undiagnosed Tourette syndrome. As with standard hiccups, Tourette's-related tics can be exacerbated by anxiety and stress. Therefore, Debbie Lane may have been correct in surmising that Jennifer's hiccups were a result of some unexpressed inner turmoil. But because the physical act of the hiccups seemed to be caused by Tourette's syndrome, the hypnotherapy hadn't succeeded in ridding Jennifer of hiccups completely. Dr. Lane prescribed Jennifer an antipsychotic medication called ORAP, which blocks dopamine receptors in the brain. As we discussed last week, dopamine is a neurotransmitter that regulates mood and behavior. Although doctors are still unsure how exactly dopamine relates to Tourette's syndrome, ORAP has proven effective in reducing the severity and frequency of both motor and vocal tics. Interestingly, when Jennifer first started seeing doctors for her hiccups, she was prescribed chlorpromazine, which also blocked dopamine receptors. But unlike chlorpromazine, which had no effect on the hiccups and caused Jennifer painful side effects, 
the ORAP worked like a charm. When she started taking it, the severe bouts of hiccups never returned. With the hiccups firmly under control, Jennifer was free to return to school. Her first day back was March 14, 2007. Although only seven weeks had passed since her hiccups started, it felt like a lifetime. Before she was the hiccup girl, Jennifer had been on the outskirts of the social scene. Now everyone wanted to be her friend. She was the center of attention, and she loved it. She embraced the hiccup girl nickname so fully that she had its letters painted on her fingernails. But Jennifer's return to school was short-lived. She had been unable to keep up with her schoolwork while she was dealing with the hiccups, and coupled with her learning disability, the gap was too much to make up. She had to be homeschooled for the rest of the year with the hope that she could return to regular classes in the fall. But homeschooling only put Jennifer further behind. Rachel worked as a waitress and wasn't able to supervise her during the day. After her shifts, Rachel still spent most of her time taking care of her elderly parents. Jennifer's stepfather, Chris Robidoux, still struggled with a thyroid disorder, and he also had to take care of Jennifer's four younger sisters. For all intents and purposes, Jennifer was on her own. Her physical symptoms were under control, but the underlying loneliness and anxiety were worse than ever. And their next manifestation would have deadly consequences. Coming up, Jennifer embraces a dangerous lifestyle. And now, back to the story. After 15-year-old Jennifer Mee's hiccups went away in the spring of 2007, she once again fell into the destructive pattern of behavior she had started years earlier. During her seven-week struggle with intractable hiccups, one of the only bright lights in her life was the international attention she received as the so-called hiccup girl. As she admitted during her hypnotherapy session with Debbie Lane, her difficult home life made her feel stifled and uncared for. And even though some of the publicity she received during her bout with the hiccups was negative, the good far outweighed the bad. Once her hiccups went away, so did the national spotlight. Jennifer thought that was what she had wanted. But losing the constant attention she had received as the hiccup girl was too much for her to handle. During the hiccup ordeal, Jennifer's mother, Rachel, bought Jennifer her very first cell phone. Having a cell phone allowed her to find that attention in ways she hadn't been able to before through text messaging and social media. And with her mother almost always out of the house and her stepfather unable to properly supervise her, there was nothing to stop Jennifer from meeting up with her online friends. Often, these meetings would result in drug use or sexual encounters. On another front, Jennifer had recently reconnected with her birth father in Vermont. He and Rachel had broken up shortly after Jennifer was born, and he had never been a part of her life. But when Jennifer's name appeared in the news, he was suddenly interested in having a relationship with her. Her stepfather, Chris, was skeptical of this budding relationship. He knew he wasn't the perfect parent, 
but he had always considered Jennifer to be his daughter. But with her birth father back in the picture and telling Jennifer everything she wanted to hear, it was becoming increasingly difficult for Chris to exert any influence over the teenager. By June of 2007, Chris and Jennifer's relationship had degraded to the point where they could barely stand to be in the same room together. There was a fair share of insults, slammed doors, and shouting matches from both sides. The situation at the Robidoux home had grown so toxic that Jennifer was almost never there, spending most nights with friends and sometimes even sleeping at the park. Anytime Chris would try to explain Jennifer's behavior to Rachel, she would wave it off. She knew Jennifer had her problems, but she figured she was just going through typical teenage growing pains. But just because she wasn't hiccuping anymore, Jennifer's life clearly wasn't back to normal. As the fall of 2007 came and went, 16-year-old Jennifer still hadn't returned to school. A tutor was coming to the house regularly, but Jennifer was only going through the motions. As education slipped further and further from her grasp, Jennifer increasingly turned to her extracurricular activities, ecstasy, weed, alcohol, and pills. And she wasn't just taking them. Now she was selling them too. It was only a matter of time until Jennifer's parents caught on to what she was doing. In the summer of 2008, shortly after Jennifer's 17th birthday, Chris decided to do some snooping on Facebook. He wasn't proud of it, but if his stepdaughter was up to anything dangerous, he had to know. What Chris saw on Jennifer's Facebook and MySpace pages shook him to his core. She alluded heavily to drinking and drug use, as well as open invitations to sexual liaisons. This was the last straw. When Rachel got home, Chris showed her the Facebook post. He told Rachel he wanted Jennifer out of the house. Rachel was angry too, but she couldn't bring herself to throw out her daughter. Eventually, they came to an agreement. Jennifer could keep living with them, but they wouldn't be staying in St. Petersburg. To get the family the space they desperately needed, Rachel and Chris found a home in the small town of Spring Hill, Florida, about a 90-minute drive from St. Petersburg. They hoped a change in scenery would be just what Jennifer needed. At first, it seemed like the move paid off. She was far away from the bad influences of St. Petersburg and was even able to enroll in the local high school, albeit at a lower grade level. However, the good feelings didn't last. Within a few weeks of starting school, Jennifer was referred to the vice principal for poor attendance and a low GPA. Once again, Jennifer dropped out of school, this time for good. On top of her academic issues, Jennifer also started to suffer from new mental health problems. One day, while she was chatting with her sister Ashley in her room, Jennifer started acting strangely. She told Ashley that she saw a husband, wife, and two kids covered in blood. Apparently, a young family had died in the house before Jennifer's family moved in. Whether Jennifer knew about this story or not, 
she was clearly seeing things. Rachel checked her into a psychiatric ward for evaluation. Personally, Rachel was convinced that the medications Jennifer was taking to control her Tourette's were taking a toll on her. But it might have been the other drugs Jennifer was abusing that caused her to see things. According to the American Addiction Center's organization, drug-induced psychosis, also known as substance-induced psychotic disorder, is simply any psychotic episode that is related to the abuse of an intoxicant. This often includes hallucinations. It's also possible that the interactions between Jennifer's prescription and recreational drugs were causing these hallucinations. Antipsychotic drugs like ORAP alter brain chemistry, and when you add in other mind-altering drugs like alcohol, marijuana, and ecstasy, a wide range of side effects can occur. That being said, it's not clear what diagnosis Jennifer's doctors reached during her four-day stay in the psych ward, but it was clear she was struggling. However, once she was released, she made no changes to her lifestyle. Even though being in Spring Hill made it harder to get down to St. Petersburg, Jennifer was still in contact with her friends in the city. The older she got, the less control Rachel and Chris had over her activities. As her 18th birthday approached, Jennifer was barely in Spring Hill at all. In the summer of 2009, Jennifer and Chris got into one of their typical heated arguments when he asked her to do some chores around the house. In response, Jennifer launched into a vicious, profanity-laced tirade. As it happened, Rachel was in the other room, and as she listened to Jennifer berate Chris, Rachel realized that her daughter's sweet girl persona was nothing more than an act. Now she was witnessing the real Jennifer, the one Chris had been warning her about for almost three years. It was a painful decision. But both Rachel and Chris agreed that Jennifer couldn't live with him any longer for the sake of their four younger children. That suited Jennifer just fine. She was almost 18 and had been planning on leaving the moment she could. Because of her various health issues, Jennifer was able to apply for government disability aid. She would receive money for an apartment, Medicaid, food stamps, and a $700 check every month for expenses. With that money, Jennifer rented a small efficiency apartment in downtown St. Petersburg. In the fall of 2009, she started seeing a 22-year-old aspiring rapper named Lamont Newton. Shortly after that, he moved in with her. With complete personal and financial freedom, Jennifer spent more time than ever taking drugs and clubbing. After about a year of living together, Jennifer and Lamont got kicked out of their apartment on October 1st, 2010. With nowhere else to go, they moved in with Lamont's best friend, Laron Rayford. It wasn't an ideal situation, but it was better than being out on the streets. Even though Rachel disagreed with Jennifer's choices, she knew she no longer had a say in how her grown daughter lived her life. But the two of them were still close and usually kept in contact. On the afternoon of October 24, 2010, Rachel met up at a park with her second oldest daughter, Ashley. 
It was a beautiful, picture-perfect fall day in Florida. Rachel figured she'd give Jennifer a call and see if she wanted to join them. But Jennifer wasn't answering her phone. It was out of character. Even though they disagreed at times, Jennifer always answered when Rachel called. That night, Rachel woke up to the phone ringing at 11 p.m. It was a collect call from the county jail. In her sleepy days, Rachel assumed it must have been a mistake, but it wasn't. Jennifer was on the line. She had been arrested for murder in the first degree. Coming up, Jennifer embarks on the fight of her life. And now, back to the story. On October 24th, 2010, Rachel Robidoux found out that her 19-year-old daughter, Jennifer Mee, had been arrested for first-degree murder. Rachel couldn't believe it. She knew that Jennifer had problems, but there was no way she could have killed someone. Calling from county jail, Jennifer explained that she hadn't personally killed the victim, but as she told Rachel, she, quote, set everything up. Before she could explain further, the call cut off. In Florida, you don't necessarily have to kill someone to be charged with murder. If a victim is killed in the process of another violent crime, then it is automatically upgraded to first-degree murder. No exceptions. In Jennifer's case, the victim was 22-year-old Shannon Griffin, a young man she had met over social media. Apparently, Jennifer had arranged with Griffin to meet up for either a date or a drug deal. It wasn't quite clear. Once he got to the meeting, Jennifer's boyfriend, Lamont Newton, and his friend, Laron Rayford, were waiting to rob him. Griffin tried to fight back, but... It was no use. He was shot several times and died. Rachel was certain that Lamont and Laron were just using Jennifer as a scapegoat. They all lived in the same apartment. It would have been easy for them to log on to her accounts and pretend to be her in order to lure Griffin into the robbery. And in the event that Jennifer had been the one to set up the meeting, Rachel was certain that she didn't have the mental capacity to understand the consequences of what she was doing. She struggled with a learning disability that gave her the approximate intellect of a 12-year-old. Plus, she was on medication for Tourette's syndrome that affected her brain. Rachel reasoned that Jennifer could have been easily manipulated into arranging the fatal meeting with Griffin without really realizing what was happening. Normally, the family wouldn't be able to afford the best legal services money could buy. But when the media latched on to the fact that the Hiccup girl had been charged with murder, an experienced defense lawyer named John Trevina announced he was willing to take Jennifer on as a client, free of charge. Because of the case's complex nature, there were three defendants who were all going to be tried separately Jennifer's trial didn't actually start until September 18th, 2013. In the meantime, Trevina wanted to put Jennifer's fame to work in their favor. On November 9th, 2010, 
Three weeks after Jennifer was arrested, Rachel appeared on the Today Show to defend her daughter's innocence. Sitting next to Trevina, she emphasized Jennifer's low IQ and mental issues. She spoke on how Jennifer didn't seem to grasp the severity of the charges she was facing. During one phone call, Rachel said Jennifer told her she hoped to be home by Christmas. Matt Lauer asked Trevina if he was planning on using Jennifer's Tourette's as part of her defense. Trevina replied that he believed it was a mitigating factor. He wanted Jennifer to undergo a battery of tests to make sure she was mentally capable of understanding what she was doing. If Trevina had been expecting the kid gloves treatment usually reserved for morning show interviews, he was sorely disappointed. Lauer had a prepared statement from the National Tourette Syndrome Association declaring that the condition was, quote, no more the reason for or an excuse for such offense than other medical diagnoses, such as asthma or rheumatism. Additionally, there's very little likelihood that Jennifer's medications would have that serious of an effect on her mental abilities. The side effects for the medication Jennifer was taking included drowsiness, weakness, and other fatigue-related issues. But there's no indication it would have made her such a zombie that she could have communicated with Griffin without realizing what she was doing. Her learning disability probably didn't impede her either. While it could limit her abilities in reading, writing, or mathematics, there's no indication that any learning disability impacts the understanding of right and wrong. And even if Jennifer did have the intellect of a 12-year-old, most children that age would know luring a man into an armed robbery was wrong. Although the interview didn't go as planned, John Trevina wasn't giving up on his media strategy. In April 2011, he arranged for Today Show correspondents to sit down for an exclusive interview with Jennifer in the Pinellas County Jail. When they discussed the case, Jennifer claimed that Lamont and Laron had coerced her into taking the blame. She said they convinced her that because she was young and famous, the police would go easy on her. Of course, that turned out not to be the case. As the trial approached, things weren't looking good for Jennifer. Laron's trial took place a few days before hers. He was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. There could be no argument that the crime Jennifer had facilitated wasn't meant to be a murder. But Laurent's conviction meant that if she was found guilty of setting up the robbery, she'd be going to jail for life as well. On the morning of September 13, 2013, Trevina began his face-off against Assistant State's Attorney Christopher Labruzzo. Before the trial began in earnest, Trevina told the judge that Jennifer had revealed to him during jury deliberations that she might be schizophrenic. If that was the case, there would be the possibility of making an insanity plea. The gambit seemed like a Hail Mary attempt to stave off the case. Unsurprisingly, it didn't work. Jennifer was evaluated by a court-appointed psychologist who deemed her mentally competent to stand trial. Jennifer certainly wasn't schizophrenic. There would be no hiding behind Tourette's or a learning disability either. 
if she was going to win, it would have to be on the merits of the evidence. In terms of hard evidence, there was no disputing what had happened. The state had records of the messages Griffin and Jennifer had exchanged, both online and over text messages. The murder weapon had been left at the scene. It was a gun that Laurent and Lamont had purchased a few weeks before the incident. After being arrested, Laurent, Lamont, and Jennifer had all admitted their roles in what happened. It was open and shut. After three days of testimony and four hours of deliberation, the jury returned their verdict on September 21st, 2013. Guilty. Because of Florida law, the judge had no choice but to give Jennifer a life sentence with no possibility of parole. Jennifer would be spending the rest of her life behind bars. So ends the truly tragic story of Jennifer Mee. What do you think, Molly? After examining her story, were the hiccups real? If so, what caused them? And did they have any impact on her eventual murder conviction? It seems most likely that the hiccups were a manifestation of Jennifer's Tourette syndrome, exacerbated by her anxiety and stress. It's probably not a coincidence that the hiccups went away after the hypnotherapy and aura prescription. And while the hiccups themselves didn't have any impact on Jennifer's eventual life of crime, the underlying psychological and emotional conditions that may have caused them seem to have been a factor in her later behavior. After the hiccups were cured, Jennifer's deeper traumas were never properly addressed. From the sexual assault she suffered as a child to the difficult family life and lack of attention at home, Jennifer never got help from a mental health professional to properly deal with what she was going through. The attention she received from her brief turn as the hiccup girl doesn't seem like it did Jennifer any favors either. The false sense of importance she received and the resulting void when people turned their attention elsewhere would have a profound effect on anyone. Factor all that in, and it's not all that surprising that Jennifer's story ended inside a prison cell. She was fighting an uphill battle from the very start. And from the moment she became the hiccup girl, Jennifer Mee never stood a chance of getting the normal life she so desperately craved. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with another episode. Among the many sources we used, we found One Breath Away, The Hiccup Girl, From Media Darling to Convicted Killer, by M. William Phelps, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler 
is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Alex Benedon and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.